Well, hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm here with a new friend whose work I've known for a while, whom I corresponded with last week thanks to a nice email from him, and whom I've met today. But I'm going to check on my pronunciation of your name. How is Martin Hultmann? Ah, good. That's okay? All fine, yeah. That, that qualifies. Yeah. That's acceptable. It's better R than me, because I'm from a part in Sweden where you don't really say R, so, oh. so I often leave out R in my name. So, so I, Martin. I say Martin. Martin Hultmann. Yeah. But you, Martin is better. He's better. Yeah. <laughs> Martin is, of course, a traditional religious um, expression. Matins. Um, morning prayer, I think. So, uh, I'm very excited to meet you because I think you're one of the sharpest and most interesting critics working on the environment at the moment. And I've just heard a wonderful paper you gave on, I guess we could call it environmental masculinities. I think you used an expression of that kind. So I wondered if you could maybe first off tell us about your new book, but then also tell us about projects you're working on now. Um, yeah, we and you can do some in <clears throat> Swedish if you want. Okay, if you want to expand your audience massively. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. We just released a book uh, called "Global Discourses of uh, Climate Change" uh, mm. on Rutledge. Um, me and a colleague of mine, we have um, followed the the climate change debate from 2006 to now, uh, 2014, with a special focus on the year 2006 to 2009. Uh, we have analyzed around 3,500 uh, articles uh, and opinion pieces. So it's like political actors, mainly, so mainly from Sweden, Oh, hi, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm loving it. I know you're going off to Australia tonight, so I really hope the conference is great. Yeah, it will be. And I also kind of like the change of weather, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Tell my best to Fiona. Are we going to yes. see her? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Tell I'm my best to her. I hope she's, 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 she's fine. She's recovering, but yeah. she's much better now. So, but we couldn't go to Vietnam and Cambodia, so we had to go to New Zealand. That's, that'll be fine. Yeah. But see you after Christmas. Yes. yes. I hope to see you somewhere else. In the I'd love that. And next time we do the podcast when you're not running away. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Bordil, who is the director of the Advanced Cultural Studies Institute of Sweden, where we are at the moment. And she was just saying goodbye because she's taking an ideological jet <laughs> to Australia from Sweden. We are here in North Shopping, I yeah. should say. So anyway, you analysed over 3,000 political and other documents to look at yeah. climate change discourses. Discourses, yeah. And what, what methodology were you using for We were using kind of broad discourse analysis, so trying to find uh, important um, phrases but also images within the language that yeah. different actors were connecting their ideas to. So we came up with... Um, and a result or the analysis turned out that we found four different discourses within the climate change debate today. The first one, which is dominating both in Sweden and globally, is something we call industrial fatalism. And that is a discourse that is basically saying that we have to continue as we have done for the last 150, 200 years. There's not, no way that we can 
change our industrial modernization. Mm. Uh, Everybody wants it. Those who don't have it desire it. Yeah. Those who have it don't want to let go of it. Yeah. But they recognize climate change anyhow, so they want to do something uh, about it. So the the main uh, solutions for industrial fatalism for climate change is one to create uh, a global uh, market for carbon dioxide uh, emissions, and second to put uh, all the buck in the world into nuclear power. Yeah. So that's kind of the two big solutions for industrial fatalism. Right. The second discourse that we found is the one that we call green Keynesianism. And that, is, of course, uh, goes a long way back to the Keynesianism from the beginning of the 19th centuries, in which you can invest money uh, to gain growth and, and to gain welfare for, for a lot of people. And this is kind of uh, remade into uh, an idea that we should invest in green technology, we should invest in renewables, we should invest in... in uh, fast speed trains and and wind power and stuff so, so we, new technologies will trade us out of this problem develop us out of this problem yeah. so it's the traditional innovation as the answer to everything yeah. yes yeah. and also led with the green Keynesian idea that the state should have a bigger role i say that the first in the industrial fatalist discourse is the the market and the the capitalism as as, uh, as it played out in the neoliberalism way yeah. is is the solution in in green Keynesianism is the capitalism as is, has been played out in the social democratic way that yeah. that could be regulated and 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 taken care of but also stimulated by the state so we can all be Norwegians and Swedes yeah. and tame the baser world of capital. Yeah, that's the green Keynesianism idea, yeah, yeah. discourse. Yeah. And then the third one is what we call uh, the eco-socialism discourse. Uh, and that discourse is, of course, very different from the two first ones. And it's also very smaller in, in the amount of articles, but also of actors and, and values that go into the debate. Uh, but the eco-socialists are, of course, taking the the challenge of climate change not as as only as a challenge for industry or for capitalism. It's a challenge for the whole lifestyles and the whole um, extractive industries or extractivism and colonialism mm. in, the, in the kind of merger in between those two that has been played out for the last 500 years or so. And this expansion l logic that that is part uh, capitalism but also part colonialism and, and could be described as ex extractivism. Mm. So the mm. the eco-socialism take take that um, to critique exactly that the the critique the, the critique of the those ideas of extractivism as mm -hmm. the the really part and also. Uh, the eco-socialist uh, discourse say that we need to uh, relocalize again. We need yeah. to localize our, our societies in a, in a very different way than it is played out today. We need to um, have renewables, but renewables that are actually small scale and decentralized in the way. We also need to create uh, 
resilient communities in the way that we we know each other, we learn in a in a in a way that actually is part of how nature works, instead of, of trying to to be the dominator of the nature, trying to make, make it together uh, with nature. So that's the eco-socialist discourse. And then we have the fourth discourse, uh, the, the climate skeptics or the climate denial discourse. Those, yeah. Yeah. those that are actually will not would not like to talk about environmental or climate change at all, mm. because they would just uh, uh, do as they have done uh, recently and just extractive. Uh, and extract, uh, extractive industries taking the oil up and the coal and just burn it and and we will fix it in another way we will replace the um, the loss of a, of a of a lake that you can swim in we it's just to replace with the uh, with a pool instead so that the kind of you can replace the nature with man made uh, uh, things all the time and 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 they are very much in, in uh, having a positivistic uh, idea of science, but they are at the same time very constructivistic against the climate science. They think yeah. that climate science is very political and, and uh, uh, yeah, and, uh, and actually connected to, to political ideas, not to scientific ideas. In these four discourses, you've already said eco-socialism is not very populous. No. What sorts of people and institutions could we map onto the four discourses? So starting with the industrial fatalism, I guess that's most first world governments. Yeah. Is that fair to say, or global north governments? <coughs> Definitely. I would say that uh, it's most, uh, most of the governments around the world, actually, uh, but not those that are truly affected by the climate change as we see them played out. Um, in the Copenhagen there was a, a group of leaders that actually brought up the the colonialism uh, um, and, and, and the in environmental injustice mm. as something that needs to be part of the climate change negotiations. Yeah. Yeah. And those leaders uh, are not industrial fatalists. They are more connected to the eco-socialist discourse. So. Right. Yeah. And it's presumably corporations, yeah. Yeah. by and large. Yeah, definitely. Are there any elements of big green that we would put into that in terms of the, the major environmental or non-government organizations yeah i think that the the big greens would be headed uh, below the uh, green keynesianism uh, yeah because they recognize climate change but they yeah, at least that as yeah as they are now the big greens want to kind of conserve what we have now uh, and just change it a little bit and and also yeah. having a very big faith into market mechanisms and consumers, like consumer-driven change. Change, yeah. Big, yeah. big green doesn't want to say the C word, capitalism. Yeah. Does it? No, it's true. Okay, so that's those two groups. Yeah. Eco-socialists are just a bunch of rather sad white men and women running around as you and I. Tails. <laughs> it's us. And there was maybe two or three others in the room earlier today. <laughs> Uh, I mean, there's a stereotype we can laugh at good-humouredly, but is that right? No, I think that they're actually, 
quite a radicalization, if we can term it like that. It's more of a realization, I would say, among younger people, youth, uh, greens, but mm. also among indigenous groups that are actually taking the 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 issue for really real, and they are um, uh, seeing, they are uh, recognizing, and they are are seeing it in their everyday life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they get radicalized because they are pushed back with uh, climate change and and extractivism. And yeah. They are reacting, and they are actually also creating new collaborations. What about non-government organizations that are outside the law? In many cases, I'm thinking of the way in which Animal Liberation Front people are classified as eco-terrorists mm. in the United States in some mm. instances, mm. for example. Mm. I mean, obviously, they're very fringe in terms mm. of mm. their capacity to influence climate change discourse. But are they in that segment, segment three? Yeah, many of them are, I would say, mm. definitely. Um, and um, many of them also are using this new moral landscape yeah. that I say that we need to recognize with climate change, that it is, a, it is a global issue, it's a global environmental justice issue in which uh, we have for so long time got used to uh, extracting uh, oil, coal and gas and, and pushing the emissions out and creating mm -hmm. welfare with that. Yeah. Uh, but we cannot think, we, we need to recreate that moral landscape today and we, we need to get the nature and the climate into our moral. Mm. And of course they are acting with that new moral mm. landscape and that's mm. why they can claim that they are actually doing something really good and really right when they are doing activism and stuff in, in that new landscape. And in this very fascinating typology you've constructed for the book, which I think I can recognize, I think it makes a lot of sense. I haven't read the book, I must admit, but it makes a lot of sense to me kind of instinctively. Where do we put anthropocentric versus ecocentric worldviews? Um, I, I presume category one, industrial fatalism is anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. And obviously category four, the denials mm -hmm. people, are anthropocentric. And the other two... Mm -hmm. um, are they ecocentric more, would you say? Um, yeah, definitely more ecocentric. Um, I would say it's, it's the scale there, that the green Keynesianism is somewhere in between ecocentric and anthropocentric. And, and the ecosocialism is definitely trying to have a nature-culture understanding of, mm. of not ecocentric in the way that, that we should only understand uh, environmental values as such but I think that they, they have a recognition of that uh, we are creating nature with values and ideas and stuff mm. but nature is also creating us so it's mm. it's a it's a nature and cultural ontology understanding that that we live together and we are nature as humans and we mm. and nature is also out there and 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 nature is within us. Thinking with mm. water mm. as an example that we are 65 to 70 percent water in our mm. bodies mm. And, and, and water is also outside in the environment but it's a constant change of water from our bodies to the environment. Mm. Mm -hmm.
-hmm. So this is a feedback, biofeedback metaphor yeah. almost, yeah. but it's more yeah. than a metaphor. Yeah. It's incarnate yeah. in our physiology. Yeah. Yeah. And this breaks down the distinction man slash human yeah. nature. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, climate change is, is the kind of easiest ex or the best examples of that maybe yeah. because yeah. we the, it's no place around the globe or in nature that climate change is not happening. It, it's it's mm. part of every uh, um, process around the globe and we yeah. are part of creating that and, and th that process is part of creating us. And in terms of the, the rest of the book, um, what else do you do apart from set up and explain and back up empirically these taxonomies? Mm. We are working with uh, uh, one concept that has become really important for us. And that is uh, the concept of eco-modern utopia. Uh, we, uh, in our analysis, we find that both the industrial fat fatalism discourse and the green Keynesianism discourse are uh, thinking and acting as if we are part of an eco-modern utopia. The, the solutions that they are proposing, uh, as for example for carbon dioxide markets, they are described as utopian in the way that they are described with sh strong emotions and very strong uh, images, but also very um, partly described. So it's more of a of a vision that they are trying to to describe that we have this already, uh, even though that is not really comparable with the the, the science that the, the climate science are telling mm. us that that the si climate science is telling us that we need to change and we need to change our uh, everyday practice today. But the industrial fatalism and the green conditionism they are describing this that we have already environmental friendly practices in a, a modern utopian way that we do, do not need to change. We can mm. have this mm. green economy and everything will be fine. Mm. Wow. Okay. So that's one concept that we work with. And yeah. then the other important in analysis is that uh, during the years 2009 to 2008, 2006 to 2009, climate change was very much described in apocalyptic terms, terminology. And a lot of scholars have said that this apocalypse uh, description mm. is uh, actually taking away uh, politics and action from the environmental question. Mm. So a lot of scholars have said this apocalyptic framing is actually make... Uh, creating a passivity mm -hmm. among the public. But our analysis is the contrary. We say that this apocalyptic framing during these years actually created a lot of action among environmental groups and, and uh, grassroots movements and also among politicians because they had to relate to this mm -hmm. framing. Mm -hmm. So we actually say that it is actually the other way around. We need more of ap apocalyptic framing, and especially in the way that apocalyptic framing was done during these years, that we can actually do something about it as well. So, the so on the one hand, it's a shock, yeah, but it's also an urge. Yeah. So 
things are dreadful, and yeah. this could be the end of life as we know it, yeah. but you can make a difference. Yeah. Yes? Yeah. And that was, both those ideas was yeah. present during yeah. this period of time. Right. It, it cre- and that created the, mm. the action among the grassroots and mm. action among mm. the politicians and stuff. Mm. And we, we think that we should learn from that mm. and not dismiss apocalyptic framing. We need to have that. Yeah. But we also yeah. need to have the action part. It sounds like a cultural <coughs> studies book or paper, doesn't it, in general? <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to say life is shit, everything's <laughs> fucked, and it's all dreadful. But by the way, there are re- there's real hope. Yeah. We, together yeah. we can you know, defeat capital, patriarchy, you know, yeah. name your... Yeah. Tell and name your villain, yeah. but yeah, I I I think that's probably right, and I imagine a lot of marketers operate that way. I mean, there is a tendency in marketing mm. to consider apocalyptic visions mm. as a means of selling things mm. because mm. you drum up interest mm. in something mm. by saying all is bleak. Look at this, and then you provide a solution. In mm. fact, mm. a lot of marketing in the history of U.S. marketing in the mm. last century, a vast amount of it is apocalyptic at an individual level. Mm. You will be fat, you will be ugly, mm. you will be unwanted, you will mm. smell, you will lose your job. Mm. It's really, really dire. Mm. I mean, the things mm. that confront you, unless you mm. buy mm. dot, dot, dot. You know, I mean, it's a mm. really standard trope, certainly mm. in US marketing. Yeah. Mm. And of course, other things like, like the uh, the terrorism uh, description from the beginning of the, the century was also this... Uh, very dreadful and, and very uh, strong idea, and then also action came with that, so to speak. So you mm. you 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 need to in both good and bad ways. You yeah. need to have both the description of what the, the problem yeah. is and also the action, so so to speak. I hear yeah. you. I hear you. And um, wow. yeah, so, and and that it's also it, it's not just an idea. It's it's also very present in our empirical material that. That is actually what we can learn from this period. Well, I think one of the things that your work uh, showed me today when I heard you presenting some of it is that you recognize that theory is everywhere. It's not something that belongs in universities. Mm. It's in the street mm. and it's in our everyday lives. Yeah. It's, it's embodied in our movements, mm. our practices, our exchanges. And therefore, the imposition of typologies such as you're doing is not really different from the way people think. Mm. It's just because they're theorizing and generalizing all the time. Mm. Mm. It's just that you're adopting a more Olympian worldview, mm. Mm. you know, where mm. you categorize all, mm. including yourselves. Yeah. You yeah. don't say you're outside it, but yeah. it's meta-theorizing yeah. that's slightly different. That yeah. A lot of these other groups don't do, mm. but you actually do. Mm. Uh, I wonder if we could turn... Oh, who's your co-author, <coughs> by the way? Co-author is Jonas Anselm. Jonas Anselm. Anselm yeah. Okay. Well, Jonas, if you're out there, you know, big shout out <laughs> and thanks for doing this work with the variously named Martin and Ma- Martin. <laughs> uh, I wondered if we could turn now to some of the things I know you're working on at present and in the future. Uh, I don't know how much time you've got. Have you got another ten minutes or so before you need to leave? Um, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Ten minutes. Yeah. So, ten. You're ten starting. Yeah. Ten minutes on. Yeah. Masculinity, yeah. starting now. No, yeah, from my work, uh, from my empirical work, the last ten years, uh, I've been thinking about masculinities and trying to see if they can be understood in configurations together with mas- uh, environmental politics. Because I think that we are identities at the same times as we are political beings. So uh, I think that we are 
creating ourselves through different types of, of gendered mas- uh, identities. Mm. Uh, and I think that's that could be important to understand to make us reflect upon how who we are and what we do. So, yeah, I came up with three configurations of environmental masculinities, of industrial masculinity and eco-modern masculinity and uh, ecological masculinity. And they, of course, connect in some way also to the three, four discourses that I've been talking about in the, in the book, in which um, uh, industrial uh, masculinity is the uh, climate skeptics and the... Uh, Eco-modern masculinity is connected to the industrial fatalism and green Keynesianism uh, discourse. And the uh, ecological masculinity is connected to the eco-socialist discourse. Mm -hmm. And I guess I have to ask you about the other half to this. Where does femininity and where does feminism fit in your account of masculinities and their significance for environmentalism? Yeah, for <clears throat> for me, feminism is a is a inspiration, source of inf- inspiration, and also a source of of analytical uh, innovation in the way that uh, gender studies uh, broadly, I think, is a at least in Sweden, is a zone of of innovation in concepts and theories and and uh, world making as well. I think. Um, so feminism is, is for me an inspiration in, in analyzing different types of masculinities. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, probably s- someone out there can do a, a, a different uh, and uh, kind of a configuration or analysis of femininities within the environmental politics uh, as well. Uh, I haven't done that uh, yet. Uh, somebody else probably is much better suited to do that. Uh, I haven't really had the empirical material, uh, I think, uh, at least for now, uh, and I haven't really uh, been having those kind of sources for inspiration. Mm. But I think that uh, the kind of configurations within the environmental politics in forms of masculinities that I've been talking about could also be have, have other forms of identities as femininities, but also other types of, of identities. Yeah. Mm. So, so it's it's more... It's more of a process of, of, of finding useful concepts to to go to to go further with, so to speak, yeah. and and not to to make them into boxes and then leave them there. So these configurations is more in part of a process of understanding this this field of environmental politics. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In some of the slides you showed us today, I got the sense of a very traditional masculinity being about, for you, this centralised industrial fatalism. Mm. But I wondered about what that plays out as in terms of, say, a working class. Mm. Because just as, say, in the United States, there's an ethology which is quite wrong, about African-American men being opposed to environmentalism Mm -hmm. because there's a long tradition, of course, of an environmental movement amongst African-Americans going back Mm -hmm. to slavery Mm -hmm. and, of course, environmental justice Mm -hmm. as a racialized concept derives very much from their experience. But I wondered about this issue of 
the idea of the working man mm. who wants a job in a factory mm. or in the extractive sector mm. sees that as central to his identity mm. and regards tree huggers as some kind of middle class mm. foe. Mm-hmm. How does that stereotype play out, say, in the Swedish context? Yeah. First, I must say, I think that that is something that I would like to work with further and, and trying to do analysis of that. Uh, I, the the kind of masculinities that I've been looking th- with and through now is mm. is based on a, on a, a, a quite public available empirical material so so and and of course what you're talking about uh, is not really in that 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 space that I've been an- analyzed so maybe maybe it might be definitely possible to find other types of, of masculinities played out within the in, uh, together with environment for that working class uh, man who's taking a, a job at extractive industry um, so I, I'm, I'm going to have a research project regarding extractive industries the, the next uh, two and a half years. And uh, maybe that could be one of the cases that I'm looking into, like uh, workers who are actually working in the mines or working, working in the oil industry. What, what, what kind of uh, ideas about environment and practice are they, they actually pursuing there? Uh, so, yeah, it... it, it it turned out to be kind of a polit- uh, politician answer to that. But then I, but I haven't done it. I haven't done the research, so I can't say anything. No, okay. and, uh, because I know you've got to jet off to see the family and yeah, then uh, head north. I say jet off, thinking it's probably a train you're taking. I'm actually taking the night train. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wonder. It's a hundred. It's a thousand miles, but uh, it's actually kind of a part of me that is actually trying to be and do also what I say. Um, I think that we are very much stuck in practices and structures in the the Western world that are truly unsustainable and uh, um, we, we have to make an effort to actually break free of that and make something else and the night train to Umeå is one of one of the things that I'm trying to do I'm I'm doing very much not good things in in other ways Um, and and my ecological footprint and my emissions are definitely higher than uh, than the average global citizen but uh, I think that we all of us need to do what we can to change. And you mentioned recently you've become a vegetarian. And Umu is vegan paradise, I've been told. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, In terms of folks catching up on your work, there's the new book from Routledge. Are there any other places like websites or whatever where they might be able to get hold of your thoughts, your ideas? Yeah. uh, of course, I have a homepage at Umeå University, uh, but maybe the easiest way to get to know my analysis and my thoughts and, and my take on environmental politics is uh, my article that has been published in Environmental Humanities 
uh, about Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, it's called The Making of an Environmental Hero. Arnold, Eco-Modern Masculinity, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Fuel Cells. Uh, so that's kind of a condensed uh, way to uh, enter the the world of my thoughts. Uh, one of the great <laughs> things in your paper today was in question time when you mentioned that every time you'd given this talk about environmental masculinities and you'd mentioned Schwarzenegger, one man in the audience yeah. had gotten up to defend yeah. Yeah. Schwarzenegger. <laughs> this was utterly wonderful. It's always that. <laughs> Gee, blokes, we're so cute and sweet, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, we are. Well, thank you very much, and I hope that maybe when you are well into or finished the mines, extractive industries research, you'll come back into the pod. We can have a more extended conversation. Thank you. We'd love to. Love to. <laughs>